Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Poems, Prayers, and Promises, a look at a variety of psalms. The psalms are the prayers of God's people, encouraging and teaching us how to pray in our day. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Good morning. Good morning. All right. I think our five minutes has is uh, over now, so if you can make your way back to your seats. Good morning again. My name is Philip Moore, and, and you probably saw me about a month ago uh, preaching on Psalm 102. Uh, some of you know me from long before that, when I was a student at St. John's College, and it's an honor to be here again to share God's Word with you. And my sermon today will be the last one in the summer series, Poems, Prayers, and Promises. So, in this series, we've heard from a variety of psalms delivered by a variety of preachers while Brett has been enjoying his sabbatical. I'd like to just recap that really quickly. In this series, we've considered both the dark depths of forsakenness in Psalm 88 and the penetrating light of God's presence in Psalm 27. We've gained a vision for God's eternity in Psalm 90 and also of God's incarnation into the world in Psalm 8. We've considered God's deliverance and salvation from many angles in Psalms 34, 46, and 142. And Psalm 51 showed us what confession of sin looks like as we yearn for the true contentment of God's presence, described in Psalm 63. We've learned how the sufferer in Psalm 102 participates in Jesus' humiliation and exaltation. And from Psalm 72, it became perfectly clear that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ, and in Him alone. My little blurb summaries are only scratching the surface of what God has been teaching us this summer, so I recommend going back through the Poems, Prayers, and Promises series on the website to listen to those sermons in full if you haven't done so already. Now, even though we've been hearing from a variety of preachers on a variety of psalms, as I've listened to each sermon, I've detected at least two dominant strands. The first strand is that Jesus Christ is both present and promised throughout the Psalter. The second strand is that because these ancient songs and prayers connect to Jesus Christ, they connect also to us, his church. And so we can use these psalms as models and molds to shape our own prayers, our own songs. This morning I'm going to bring forth a psalm that stretches both of these strands to their limit, Psalm 139. At first, it might be hard to see how Jesus Christ is both present and promised in all of Psalm 139. And it might be hard to see how we in the New Covenant, the church, can make all of this psalm our own prayer. But Psalm 139 is just as messianic, just as Christ-centered and Christ-focused as all the other psalms. And if it's Christ-centered and Christ-focused, then we can use it as a model and mold for our own prayers as well. Today I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, which is up on the screen, and I encourage you to follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. And what I'm about to declare to you is God's good, infallible, inerrant, and precious word from Psalm 139. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are all your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let me pray briefly. O Father, how precious are your thoughts. Yet how difficult they sometimes are for us. Help us to hear your word and apply it rightly. Led by your spirit, following your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. So you're driving in your car, going exactly the speed limit, not looking at your phone, eyes forward, both hands on the wheel, no distractions, and then bam, an unlabeled speed bump. And I'd like you to welcome, I'd like to welcome you to where I live in Bethesda, Maryland, where we have many speed bumps that were once labeled and are no longer. And I'm sure that doesn't happen around Annapolis at all. And for most readers of Psalm 139, there's a hidden speed bump. It's an easy cruise until verse 19, which jolts us and causes some to lose control of where this psalm is going. That's especially the case if you think, as some scholars do, that the first 18 verses are a kind of abstract theologizing disguised as personal prayer. But that's not what Psalm 139 is. Yes, it does include some deep and good theology, declarations of God's complete knowledge of everything and his presence everywhere in creation, for example. But all the way through, Psalm 139 is far more personal and relational than most theology textbooks. Getting the personal and relational aspect of this psalm is key to getting the psalm as a whole. And keeping the psalm as a whole is necessary for understanding it well enough to apply it. Necessary for correctly shaping our prayers in the mold of this inspired prayer. We can't chop out the hard parts. So one of my goals this morning is to lay down four rumble strips to help us slow down before we hit that speed bump at verse 19. 
so that we'll be able rightly to apply not only the easy, but also the difficult parts of God's inspired word. Now again, when we do look at the whole psalm, we see that it's about an intimate, personal relationship. Specifically, David's prayer about his own relationship with God. By extension, it's about our relationship with God and our status in his reckoning. We all have either a status that leads to being slain like the wicked, or a status that leads to the goal of the way everlasting. Psalm 139 as a whole shows us, and and here's the big idea of the sermon. The way everlasting is open only to those who are tested and known by God. In other words, God works salvation for those who in faith turn away from their sins and turn to rely on God's mercy in Jesus Christ. Now let's walk through some of the details of the psalm to flesh out this big idea. And along the way, I'll suggest some applications and then at the end, uh, tackle some of the bigger ones with, with two questions. So, moving into the psalm. First, we note that the superscription of Psalm 139 says that it's a psalm of David. This poem is David's prayer that he wrote down while inspired by the Holy Spirit. He wrote it down so that God's people might be able to sing it together and make his inspired words their own prayer. Now that sounds simple, even basic, but I stress it because it puts the brakes on that already mentioned tendency to interpret the psalm as a a theological treatise. Yes, David was a man after God's own heart and often wrote as a prophet under the inspiration of the Spirit, but he wasn't a dogmatician writing textbooks for Israel's seminarians. So already we have our first rumble strip. This will slow us down. Simply put, Psalm 139 is about David's relationship with God and ours by extension. We can see that point too in how the psalm opens up. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. David's focus at the beginning of this prayer is not just that the Lord knows anything and everything, though he does, surely, but that the Lord knows him personally and deeply and intimately. The Lord knows what David does in the morning and at night, in public and in private. The Lord knows what David thinks. And not only that, verse 4 affirms that the Lord knows what David will think and say and do in the future, before it ever happens. So far, this stanza seems like a smooth ride. It feels good to be known by someone, right? To be understood But in verse 5, David's language changes just a little bit. To be hemmed in, as the ESV and the NIV put it, is not a good thing. It could be a metaphor for God's all-encompassing protection, but this verb in Hebrew is usually used for besieging and conquering a city. What about the Lord laying his palm on David or his hand? Well, that could be talking about acceptance and protection, But the Lord also lays his palm on those that he's mastering, those that he's judging, as in the book of Job. These ambiguities should make us look back at everything said in this first stanza. Suddenly, it all starts to look a little double-edged. The Lord searching me could just as well be a kind of interrogation, as God often does when he approaches someone who has just sinned or is about to sin. Think Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. The Lord's discerning my thoughts doesn't sound like such a good thing when I recall how often my thoughts are unworthy and sinful. And the Lord's searching out my path and my lying down uses the Hebrew word for winnowing grain, sifting out 
the good and the bad. And that starts to sound a little bit ominous. Even the great exclamation in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, uses a double-edged Hebrew word. Things can be too wonderful in the sense that Job meant it when God rebuked him. This is what Job said, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And God's disastrous plagues against Egypt were also called wonders, using the same Hebrew root. It's a double-edged word, for sure. The wonderfulness of God's thoughts extends both to his blessings and to his curses, both to his smiling providence and to his use of affliction in the lives of his people to refine them and in the lives of his enemies to judge them. Also double-edged is that word high in the statement that God's knowledge is high in verse 6. It has the sense of being inaccessible to us. So yes, God makes himself known to us out of his goodness and his grace, but we cannot fully and comprehensively understand how or why he chooses what he does. For David, that's true both when things are going well and when they're not, both when he's feeling good in his relationship with God and when he recognizes that God knows his sins and vices all too well. The point I'm making is this, and this is the second rumble strip. God's complete knowledge of everything that David has done, does, and will do can be either comforting or terrifying. For the person walking in the light as God is in the light, confessing sins and seeking forgiveness and turning to walk with renewed obedience, and for the person faithfully suffering in a season of lament, the Lord's intimate personal knowledge is a great assurance, the fullest kind of comfort. But for someone attempting to hide sins, for the hypocrite, for someone living a lie, even lying to oneself, for that person, and I speak from my own experience, being hemmed in by the Lord is not going to feel like a hug. And the pressure of the Lord's hand is going to be heavy. The doubleness at the beginning of Psalm 139 explains why the next stanza opens up with David contemplating going away from the Lord's spirit and fleeing from his presence. Doesn't it bring to mind the disobedient Jonah fleeing from God? It's the same language. David's question, how can I get away from you, suggests that he at some point did entertain the prospect of fleeing from God. Now the answer he's learned is he, he can run, but he can't hide. The heavens above and the underworld below, the Lord is there already. If David goes as far east as the sunrise or as far west across the Mediterranean Sea, again speaking from Israel's perspective, God will steer him the way God wants him to go. And in the most vivid paradox, even if David were to take refuge in darkness, God would see him, as we say, plain as day. So in this stanza, again, there's a doubleness. On the one hand, the mature David has learned well that God is present everywhere, and there's no place for the sinner to hide from him. On the other hand, even when God hunted him down, so to speak, there was grace in it. Look again at verse 10 and verse 12. Even there, when the Lord tracks him down, he does so in order to lead him. The same word for leading that David uses in Psalm 23, talking about God the shepherd leading him in paths of righteousness. Similarly, the wish to dwell in deadly darkness is not too much 
for the creator who can make life-giving light to shine wherever and whenever he chooses. So this stanza, like the first, has a doubleness to it. And here's the third rumble strip. God is everywhere, and that's a comfort to some and a terror to others. It's a comfort to you who are downcast, lonely, fearful, lost, repenting. For you, God's presence everywhere, just like his intimate personal knowledge of you, brings assurance that God has not let you fall off the face of the earth, has not left you so far away that you cannot come back. At the precipice and even in the pit of despair, the God who creates light out of darkness and brings dusk to life can see you, meet you, hold you tight, guide you back to himself, bring you to life again. But to those who are stubborn, puffed up, arrogant, thinking that we know better than God, despising God's promises and commands, for such a person, again, speaking from firsthand experience, God's presence doesn't feel very comfortable. As the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says, for the person who deliberately goes on sinning after coming to a knowledge of the truth, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You've likely heard that proverb from Solomon, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think Solomon learned that truth from his father, David. That proverb captures the message so far in Psalm 139. David has learned to fear the Lord in a twofold way. He has both a sense of awe and wonder at God's majesty and holiness. And also, because he's a sinner, he has a sense of trembling before this all-knowing, everywhere-present God. That explains the double-edged language that we've seen already in the psalm, and it will explain the the contrasting tones of the next two stanzas. And look at, with, look, uh, at me with the third stanza, which is verses 13 through 18. This stanza is further proof that David is focused on intimate, personal relationship between God and himself. Here David acknowledges God, all-knowing and everywhere present, to be both his creator and his master. These are not abstract or impersonal titles. We find instead some of Scripture's most intimate descriptions of God's creation and predestination of an individual human life. God created the most complicated inner parts of David, and he put things in order just the way he wanted. The intimacy, the closeness of this creation demonstrates God's care and love for David. And so it leads David to another declaration of how wonderful God's works are, echoing how wonderfully incomprehensible his thoughts were in verse 6 above. Here David praises God for creating him and orchestrating his development in the womb. That's something only God could have done. According to verse 15, God alone had access to this part of David's being. Even more pointedly and emphatically, in verse 16, God could see David while he was yet an embryo and ordained all his days from conception to death. I'm not being political, but I am being scriptural when I say that we should not dare to exert our own control over the beginning or ending of human life. This morning, I won't tackle in detail the issues of abortion and euthanasia because my focus is on reading the whole psalm, but I'll simply say that Psalm 139 is an important text for understanding what all of Scripture confirms. David speaks to the dignity that God bestowed upon him from his conception on. It's not even enough to say that David was a person at conception. He had the dignity of a person even before 
his conception, since he was written about in God's book, which contains the foreordained plan for all of David's life. God bestows this dignity to each of his image bearers. You have been carefully and lovingly formed. Your significance and worth are not grounded in what you do, not in whether you or anyone else might like your features, but rather your significance and worth are grounded in what God made you to be, in who you are in his eyes. And I can declare to you with all the authority of God's word, regardless of whether you're a Christian yet, that you are an amazing creation of God, formed particularly and intimately in God's own image and according to his likeness, with care and attention, part of God's all-sovereign plan written in his book. The truth is both exalting and humbling, both enriching and showing us our utter dependence upon God. The truth should lead us to say with David, how precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. But now again, it has to be pointed out that there's a doubleness. The word for being precious can also be uh, taken to mean being weighty or difficult. As with wonderful before, the point is that God's thoughts, just like his knowledge and his presence, are too much for David. God's intimate creation and all-encompassing providence are both an overwhelming delight for David as he's aware of God's creative goodness and redeeming grace and an unbearable problem for David as he's conscious of his own sin. So here's the fourth and final rumble strip to help us appreciate the final stanza. It's this. God's control over creation and providence, his, his intimate and total control over every individual human life is both delightful and sobering. It's delightful because everything God does is good and holy and wise and right. It's sobering because of the contrast between the holy God and the sinful human. The thought of God's infinite tenderness wakes David up at the end of the stanza to realize the danger that's all around him and within him, the danger that's in the world and in his own heart. So let me review those four rumble strips before we get to our speed bump. I want to do this so that we can read the psalm as a whole, as it's meant to be read, so that we can see Christ clearly and accurately in it, so that we can apply its message correctly. And the first rumble strip was to keep in mind that Psalm 130, uh, 139 is about David's intimate, personal relationship with God and ours by extension. The second was that God's complete knowledge can be either comforting or terrifying. The third, similar to the second, was that God's presence everywhere can be either comforting or terrifying. And the fourth is that God's control over creation and providence, his intimate and total control over an individual's life, is both sobering I'm sorry, both delightful and sobering. And I hope that these rumble strips can slow us down enough not to be jolted into confusion when David cries out against people who are God's enemies. I don't intend to soften David's language in verses 19 through 22. David's language for hatred is about as clear and emphatic as Hebrew can get. I'm not going to soften it, but I am going to say that these verses too relate to our rumble strips. They are also about David's relationship with God. They are also about the terror that can come from recognizing God's complete knowledge and his presence everywhere. 
they are also connected to God's authority as creator over all and master over all. So now we go into verse 19. We see that David knows about God's ultimate judgment of the wicked one. Recall that the Psalter opens with Psalm 1 declaring, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You see, God's judgment of the wicked, of those who rebel against him and oppress others, is a certainty from Genesis to Revelation. In the Bible and in the Psalter especially, the theme of God's salvation of his people is connected with God's judgment against his enemies. Salvation comes through judgment, and that's true in both Testaments. That was true in the great flood. That was true in the exodus, in God's deliverance of David, in the preservation of the remnant in the exile, in the work of Jesus at the cross, and in the book of Revelation. For now, without explaining those last two, we just need to see that David's awareness of God's just judgment against sinners is nothing strange or out of place. Given David's certainty that God will put the wicked to death, David turns to address the men of blood in the second line of verse 19. O men of blood, depart from me. These men of blood are bloodthirsty people who despise God's image and willingly destroy fellow image bearers for their own gain. Since these people take into their own hands the beginning and end of human life, they're also liars who defy and malign God. As David says in Psalm 5, you will destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the man of blood and deceit. That's why he describes these same people in verse 20 of our psalm as people whose speech is deceitful and blasphemous. And he puts a finer point on who these people are when he says that they hate the Lord and rise up against him in verse 21. To these people, David says, depart from me. That is, turn aside from pursuing me. Stop plotting against me. Don't try to influence me. I won't let you entice me into your ways. Since God will surely put the wicked to death, David wants to be as far away from such people as possible. The point of the command to depart in verse 19 of our psalm refers back to the doubleness that we've seen throughout. David is convinced of God's complete knowledge, of his presence everywhere, of his absolute authority as creator and master. God will render judgment, and it will be a just judgment that takes into account every single relevant fact. David is concerned not to be lumped in with these people who are justly going to be punished. As he prays also in Psalm 26, Do not gather up my soul with the sinners, nor my life with men of blood. That's the key context for understanding the difficult statement in verses 21 and 22. David says there that he hates God's enemies. He considers them his own enemies. David, the sinner, is here doing what every repentant sinner really must do. He's hating his own sin and anything that would lead him astray into sin. It's an essential part of true repentance, and it explains why David's petition, his actual request, is not, hear me, it is not, oh God, slay these people right now. He doesn't ask for that. What does he ask for? Instead, he asks, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David knows that God has already searched him and known him. 
And these final requests show that he wants God to know all of him in a saving way. David wants to have his anxious thoughts rooted out, to be free from sin's dominion, to be made righteous, to be wholehearted and single-minded in his devotion. He seeks testing and proof that he is of God and belongs to God. So the shift in those last two verses is remarkable and very important for understanding the rest of this stanza. In the face of other people's sin, which is hateful to David, David asks God to sift out and remove his own sin first. It's an example of taking the log out of your own eye before worrying about the speck in someone else's. It's an example of how a repentant sinner runs away from false help and toward his only true help, as terrifying as it might be. As surely as the all-knowing and everywhere-present creator and master will one day put the wicked to death, so he has provided a means for a wicked man like David to find and walk the way everlasting. So now we return to our, our speed bump analogy. If we don't see this, con- this stanza's connection to the rest of the psalm, if we ignore those rumble strips, and we're going to get a hard break, and we're going to ignore this part completely, or else we'll get a horrible jolt, and we won't understand it, and we won't want to understand it. But if we pay attention to those rumble strips, we can have a smoother ride. We can see that this last stanza contains a fundamentally good request. The request of a man who understands God's holiness and the dangers of sin crouching in the world and in his own heart. And I'll say these lines, just like the rest of the psalm, look forward to Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became man. Jesus, in his incarnation, has become the true singer of this psalm and all the others. At several points in his ministry of humiliation, I mean his ministry here on earth before the crucifixion, he submitted himself to the Father's searching and testing, as when the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was searched and known by his Father, who declared at his baptism and at his transfiguration And finally, in his resurrection, that he knew him, knew him through and through to be his tested and proven son, perfectly obedient and faithful. At all times, Jesus worked and rested in the Father's complete knowledge and in the Spirit's presence all around him. And if God formed David in the womb, how much more was that true of the incarnate Christ, whose human conception was a direct miracle of the Holy Spirit? And if David knew that God had foreordained his days, How much more was this true of the incarnate Christ? According to Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, even Jesus' crucifixion came about, quote, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, unquote. The Father ordained every one of Jesus' steps, and Jesus willingly walks them, holding his Father's thoughts to be precious above all others. Now we come to it. We see Jesus is a representative, a singer of Psalm 139, all the way up through verse 18. But can he get over the speed bump? Would Jesus say what David said? Didn't Jesus teach us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Didn't Jesus offer himself as a ransoming sacrifice to save people who were still his enemies? Didn't Jesus, as he was hanging on the cross in the most abject misery, in the most unjust suffering, say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Would this loving, self-sacrificing, forgiving Savior ever tell men of blood to depart from him? The answer from the Gospels might surprise. 
in the same Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus taught us to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors, he also said this, which is up on the screen. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, that is the final day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Part of Jesus' message is that in the final judgment, when Jesus sits as the great judge on his Father's throne, he will tell men of blood, whom he has not known in a saving way, to depart from his presence forever. Jesus gives another description of the final judgment in Matthew 25. He says that he'll separate the sheep from the goats, and to the sheep who love him and his people, he'll pronounce a blessing and give to them the inheritance of the kingdom. But as we see on the screen, it's not so for the goats on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the, devils and his, er, for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Here Jesus has the same concern about the wicked one and the men of blood that David had. More precisely, David, inspired by the Spirit of Christ, is reflecting the heart of Christ, who is also the coming judge of the living and the dead. Jesus will tell the men of blood to depart from him. But we need to notice something about Jesus' language in both of these examples and in all the other examples that we could find in the New Testament. The destruction of the wicked is always always, always deferred to God's final judgment at the end of history. It is never, never, never a practice or policy that we should carry out in the present age. Jesus' teaching clarifies something. David's attitude against evildoers is right for the king of Israel in the Old Covenant. Yet it's one that God alone will take care of at the end of the age. Understanding this point about God's revealed plan for history is essential for understanding how Jesus is the singer of Psalm 139 and how we can make this prayer our own. You see, all of history hinges on the work of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Covenant was leaning forward toward his appearing in the flesh. And when he came, many things that were unclear to David and the other saints became clearer. What all the saints in the Old Testament were hoping for was the coming of the promised seed who would bring God's kingdom to earth, overthrow the tyranny of the serpent and the wicked seed, reign with eternal shalom over all creation, and enjoy eternal Sabbath rest with his chosen people. Now when David and the prophets, by the help of the Spirit, saw into the future, they saw all these things wrapped up in one event, sometimes called the Day of the Lord. They saw judgment and salvation happening all at once. Yet we know that if the Son of God had come right away as the righteous judge, without the incarnation, without his life of humiliation and perfect obedience, without his atoning death, without his resurrection and ascension, if he had simply come to bring God's kingdom to earth in order to sweep away Satan and all those under Satan's dominion, then he would have utterly swept away every single person. Imagine the flood story where God never called Noah to build an ark. Total destruction. Not a soul spared 
no survivors, no redemption. But praise be to God, the son didn't come first as judge. He came first to bind the strong man Satan so that he could plunder his house, to end Satan's dominion, to transfer God's chosen people out of the kingdom of darkness and into his own kingdom. The Son of God did this first so that when he does come as judge, there will be a righteous remnant on the earth. His church, his bride, people made righteous through faith in him. In his humiliation, though he never abandoned his perfect holiness, he became not a hater, but a friend of sinners. He lovingly put himself in the place of those who had been hated by God, who hated God. He put himself in our place. He was crucified between two men of blood where we belong. He experienced the hatred and wrath of God against our sin as he suffered and died on the cross in order to remove from us the cause of God's righteous hatred. The good news is that we were God's enemies, and it would have been right for Jesus to loathe us, but he didn't and doesn't. In his sovereign, free choice, written in his book before the foundation of the world, together with the Father and the Spirit, he has instead loved us with an everlasting love and made for us an everlasting way to glory. So I submit to you that Jesus is the singer of Psalm 139, but he has yet to sing verses 19 through 22. And in light of his work, which is yet to be consummated when he comes as judge, we can understand this prayer and we can pray along with David. And that brings us to our questions for application. I have just two questions. The first one is, have you invited this all-knowing, everywhere-present creator and master of the universe to search you and know you and lead you in the way everlasting? I assure you, if you haven't done so yet, if you haven't repented of your sins and embraced Jesus Christ in faith, then the prospect of inviting God to search you is terrifying. God knows exactly who you are, what you're made of, what you've done, what you think. You can try to change your features, boast all you want on your social media profiles, turn down the lights, erase your search history, signal the latest virtues, get so lost in entertainment that you never even know yourself, but it won't help. I've tried all of those things. And he still finds out. He still found me. He saw right through my facades and still does. And you know what? When you come to know and trust Jesus Christ, nothing could be better than God's gaze in those areas of your life that you yourself have not wanted to look. It's not just a gaze from afar. He's near. He's closer than your skin. There's nothing that you can confess that will surprise him. There's nothing that you can say in prayer that will repel him or make him flee from you. And if you turn to him, ask him to search you, to bring your sins out into the light, and if you hand those things over to him to be dealt with by Jesus, then how glorious the thought of being known by God. He will know you as one of his own children and rejoice over you. You will be delivered from the death that's owed to God's enemies. You'll enjoy the wonder of a a purified conscience, and you'll walk with confidence in the way everlasting. For those who are already Christians, I need to repeat that same question. 
have you invited again today this all-knowing, everywhere-present creator and master of the universe to search you and know you and lead you in the way everlasting? Repentance is not a one-and-done thing. Repentance and faith go together throughout life in this age. David knew that. David, the author of Psalm 51, the height of the Psalms of repentance, didn't consider that prayer to be the last time that he would confess his sins to God. Psalm 139 makes it clear that even someone who has already been searched by God, first verse, will continue asking God to search, last verse. It's how we faithfully walk in the holy fear of God. And I emphasize it for Christians because, as the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In my case, I am so good at lying to myself, at excusing myself incrementally, microscopically, until I'm miles off course in the way everlasting. But God still sees. He still knows. He's still here. And he won't let go. So today is a call for us to renew our repentance. As the Apostle John tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, let us again put our trust in this God who is faithful and just because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ to forgive us yet again, to search us, to know us, and to lead us again in the way everlasting. And the second and final question for application is this. Can we, as people in the New Covenant, pray all of Psalm 139? Can the whole psalm inform our prayers, or do we have to skip parts of it? If what I said before seems complicated, I'll try to restate it as simply as I can here. Psalm 139 is a prayer for us, and we can pray all of it. Remembering one thing, because Jesus himself has yet to live out, verses 19 through 22, because he opened up the way of repentance in this present age, we can only pray those verses as we look forward to the final day, when the wicked one and his allies will be purged from the new world, and every judgment rendered against them will be plainly just. That's true of all the so-called imprecations in the Psalter, by the way. Anywhere that a psalmist calls for God's justice to be done, to evil people, that should prompt us to look farther forward to the day of reckoning when the Son of Man will sit as judge as the living, uh, over the living and the dead. And there are several consequences of this fact that the call for justice and the expression of hatred in Psalm 139 apply to a farther future that's not our own time. The first consequence is that we must not, in any circumstance, ask God to harm personal or political, or national enemies. Nor can we harbor in our hearts any hatred toward our neighbors, and we certainly must not take things into our own hands and become spiritual vigilantes, veritable men of blood. Because God sent his son to save sinners like you and me and our neighbors and even people that are our enemies at present, we're called in this age to pray that the men of blood would be blessed and come to be known by God in a saving way. We're called to love those who hate us and who hate our God. And we're called to seek peace with all as far as it depends on us. In this age, the call for vengeance against evildoers is suspended. Again, we live between two times, so to speak, between the revelation of God's command to submit to Christ 
and the just execution of his judgment. God, by the work of Jesus Christ, made a special time of mercy. He has made a way of escape for sinners like you and me, our neighbors and our enemies, before the final day falls upon us all. So we're called to love all and even to beg them to join us on the way everlasting. There's a second consequence of the fact that these verses are corresponding to something still future. There will be a time when God avenges his people. Keeping this in mind enables us to cry out when we endure oppression and persecution, when we're wounded and threatened by others. We can cry out for justice to be done, for everything to be made right. We can pour out our laments before our all-knowing and everywhere present creator and master, and he does hear. He hears the prayers of those who have been abused and oppressed, and he will bring you ultimate justice. So we can pray here and now that oppressive, abusive, bloodthirsty, blasphemous people would be stopped and silenced, that their sins would be restrained, that they would repent and find transforming grace in Christ, and that God would get glory despite their efforts. The third and final consequence of these verses being still future is that we can have David's attitude toward what Jesus has already condemned. One thing that he's already condemned is the old man or the old self, as Paul calls it. So Paul commands us in Colossians 3, put to death, slay what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death. Until Jesus returns, all Christians are engaged in a continual and irreconcilable war against the old self. So we can and should pray, oh, that you would slay my old fleshly self. Oh, that you would slay the liar that blasphemes in my heart. In short, verses 19 through 22 of our psalm are a call to despise our own sin, to say, depart to the things that tempt us, to hate what is evil in ourselves, to put to death the remaining corruption in our hearts. Do we hate our own sins with complete hatred? Do we count the old self, which is an enemy of God, to be our own enemy? Do we pray fervently that God would eradicate the sources of sins in our hearts? I know that I often don't. More than that, I often cherish my sins in what I think is secret. And I, as much as any of you, need to return with trembling to my all-knowing, everywhere present creator and master to pray, search me again, O Holy Spirit. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And if you find more sins, help me. Cover me again with Christ's perfect work and lead me in his way, the way everlasting. And having said this prayer for myself, let me also pray for you all. O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, prick our hearts to hear and do your word. We thank you for your work at Bay Ridge this summer, and we ask that these poems, prayers, and promises would challenge us, comfort us, shape us into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Philip. <clears throat> Excuse me. We thank you, Lord, for 
the message for your church today. But with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and come to the Lord's table. Uh, so if you have your communion packets, go ahead and get those ready. If you don't, there are still some in the back. You can go snag one right quickly. Just bear in mind, this is not something that we do lightly. Uh, this is a time to examine ourselves, as Paul says, uh, in taking communion and ask some hard and serious questions of ourselves, similar to those that have been delivered in the message this morning. You do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge Christian Church to take communion with us. You do need to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because that is what we proclaim. That is the person with whom we engage when we approach at this table. So as we examine ourselves during prayer and partaking, brothers and sisters, I invite you to approach the Lord's table with equal parts wonder fear. For what I have received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks. He broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us prepare the bread together. Father, What a privilege, a joy, and uh, a fearsomely reverent opportunity we have to engage with you at this table. We engage as unworthy people. permitted only because you sent your son and because you did not usher in the kingdom of God in force at the first coming. Lord, to stand before you is to be both joyful and terrified. And so we ask through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, as we commemorate that this morning, that you would search us, know us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we might walk worthy of the calling that you have called us to. Because you sent your son to die for us. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, we thank you 
that despite our unworthiness, you loved us. And you became our friend, our savior, and our master. The once and future king of Israel who will judge both the living and the dead. Through your blood, Lord Christ, we have access to you and right relationship with the Father in heaven. And so we thank you for that. May your goodness and your love and your mercy through your sacrifice for us never be far from our mind, our heart, or our lips. Brothers and sisters, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Spirit of God, we pray that you would pour yourself out upon us, that you would search us, and that you would show us our sin for what it is. And that you would also point us to the Savior, the one who died so that that could be forgiven, the one who wore that sin so that we could walk in righteous freedom, bound no longer to sin, but to the God who made us, who called us, who has searched us, and knows us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Stand with me if you would and receive this benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, we are blessed beyond measure. Friends, go forth and be a blessing to others. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.